Hello, hello, and welcome to another episode of Polar Times, bringing you science and stories from all of the coolest places on the planet. My name is Jack Buckingham. You're here with me once again. My guest with you today is a postdoc researcher from the National Snow and Ice Data Center, which is connected to the University of Colorado Boulder. Today, we're talking all things sea ice in the Arctic and specifically how you model it and how you predict how it's going to grow and shrink in the coming year. You know, some people may hear words like statistics and modeling and get very scared myself included. But today's guest walks us all through it, how they go about taking satellite data and creating those lovely kind of infographics that I'm sure you've all seen of, you know, snow and ice growing and shrinking in the Arctic. And it's a topic that is very pressing and very relevant and very current. We're all concerned about sea ice melt everywhere. Of course, we all are. So it's super interesting to hear what's going to be happening to that in the future, this research is quite vital. We also take a, another jaunt in the Fieldwork Fun Time section back on the Mosaic Expedition, which we talked about in a previous episode with Amy Richmond, but we on a little a different ship today. So we're mixing things up slightly and hearing things from a different perspective. Thanks again for listening to Polar Times. Uh, I hope you enjoy this episode. Okay, everyone, please welcome to the stage, Sean Horvath. Hi, Sean. How's it going? Hello. Good. How are you doing? Good, thanks. Yeah, thanks for coming on to Polar Times. So this is the first section of the podcast. We call it the icebreaker. This is where we get to know you, our guests. So who are you and how did you come to Polar Science? I got into Arctic research through a very circuitous route. So I did my, I got my bachelor's degree in aerospace engineering from Virginia Tech. And I worked for a small aerospace startup company for a couple of years in San Diego before realizing that it wasn't, wasn't the right fit. And um, I had a lot of kind of wanderlust and wanted to get out and see the world and have experiences before I settled down with a you know, normal nine to five career. I guess you'd call it a quarter life crisis maybe, but I, I left that job and that life and started working as a uh, tour guide and a wilderness uh, guide and outdoor educator, which got me into the outdoors, got me into like appreciation of, of earth and earth science a bit more and uh, I got to see the world. I got to travel a whole bunch. I lived in Guam and Hong Kong and traveled all over. I did that for about five years before kind of feeling the need to get back into science and math. And that's uh, so when I decided to go to grad school. And in the process of doing all that, I, as I mentioned, I developed a, an interest in earth science. So I started my grad program at the University of Colorado Boulder, studying hydrology and water resources, and found an advisor that I liked and wanted to work with. And about a semester into my master's program, he was approached by some folks at the National Snow and Ice Data Center at the University of Colorado Boulder um, about a project doing statistical modeling and forecasting of Arctic sea ice was originally um, a project that was going to be done by um, a guy named Drew Slater, who sadly passed away quite suddenly. And so they repurposed this project to fund a PhD student, and that happened to be me. So yeah, my advisor asked if I was interested in studying Arctic sea ice, and it was something that I never had on my radar, never even considered going into career in that. I think the idea of, of the Arctic being so remote and foreign was just really alluring, and, and so I was very excited to to do it so i kind of yeah jumped jumped on board pretty quickly 
Okay, awesome. So now you are a kind of a data scientist, is that correct? You're like um, kind of into like statistical models and that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, exactly, okay. yes. So what is it that you work on right now? Um, so right now I am working on uh, understanding the kind of evolution of sea ice throughout the winter. So we're taking a look at uh, things like how the sea ice is growing in thickness, how the concentration is changing over, over the winter months, what the snowpack is doing as it evolves over the winter, and looking at different energy fluxes um, and, and that kind of atmospheric states associated with, with these changes to understand kind of how the ice evolves over the winter, with the idea of being to better understand how that will influence what the ice does in the summer as it melts. Is it, does it melt out earlier than it? normally would or later or um, that sort of stuff. And that kind of ties back into some of the work I did for my PhD, which uh, I just finished this past May. And that work was statistical modeling and forecasting of sea ice in the summer. So that's where the kind of data science comes in. We did a lot of statistical modeling and we developed a couple models to make uh, seasonal forecasts of what the minimum sea ice cover would be and, um, and the timing that uh, sea ice would melt out at individual locations across the Arctic Ocean. So for full disclosure, I am a biologist by training and by background, and that's what I do now. So I don't know whether other biologists and um, scientists can um, empathize or sympathize, but, you know, I do statistics because I have to. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, I, that's part of the job that I struggle with. I'm not really mathematically minded or anything like that. So my first question to you is how do you go about even beginning to learn how to create these kind of statistical models? So I learned it in, in my master's program studying hydrology. Um, statistics is, is a pretty big part of hydrologic sciences because it's, as, as many earth systems are, it's very complex. And so, you know, if we could model everything numerically and understand the physics perfectly, that would be fantastic. But unfortunately, that's just really, really difficult to do and really computationally expensive. Often we, we fall back on statistical models, which can be a bit simpler computation-wise, simpler in terms of understanding the full physics of what's going on. I mean, you definitely need to understand what's, you know, what processes are, are important and, and influence what you're studying, but you're not actually modeling the physics of it. And so I learned that stuff in, in my master's program. Just that was my first kind of introduction to statistics, really, I guess. I probably did some in high school or maybe in undergrad. I don't even think I did it in undergrad. I just really liked that. I thought it was really cool and really... Um, I enjoyed coding. Once I was introduced to it and learned in my master's program, then I started learning more on my own just by reading either scientific publications or thank God for the internet, but there's a million resources online to kind of learn these different techniques and see people have put together examples of how, how they work. And so you can really, you can learn a lot on your own if you just kind of um, are willing to search for it. And and spend the time yeah for sure yeah yeah i think we all do the same thing where we try to, to google these you know issues we're having in our code and end up getting the same yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah exactly. how to how to solve this problem in r yeah yeah. I mean, that's the thing, you know, for every, every time you run into an issue, it's almost guaranteed that someone else has run into that also. I mean, it's yeah. a big world out there. Lots of people are doing this sort of stuff. So yeah, the answers are out there. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So um, you, so you're using satellite data to build these statistical models. And I read, I believe that that can forecast sea ice conditions up to seven months in the future. Yeah, the one, the mo uh, the models that we developed for my PhD program. Yeah, that we we did from one month to seven month lead times. And of course, it gets you know forecasts aren't as good further out you go, but it's we were able to show scale over some kind of baseline statistical models. Okay, so. 
Yeah, forgive me. I'm going to ask some stupid questions, but that's partly why I'm here, so that the general public doesn't. Ha- I sure. can ask them for them. <laughs> sure, sure. So when it says it uses kind of satellite data, what is that satellite data? What is is it sending you numbers? Is it sending you images to kind of overlay? What's what's the deal? How do they, how do you build these models? Yeah, yeah. So um, the satellite data we use, it's actually, um, they're called reanalysis data sets. So they're essentially, essentially general circulation models. So they're numerical models that are recreating what's happening on the earth in terms of what the air temperature is like, what the pressure is, what the, you know, is there precipitation, where the wind's blowing, it kind of calculates all those things. And it uses satellite data to kind of correct or to initialize where, where to start along the way. Um, and then those satellite products are also, um, compared to, to observations, radio songs that, that are done all over the world. And so it all gets kind of bias corrected. And so these reanalysis data products are these, these models that are essentially frozen in time. So often when we, you know, we hear about climate science or these GCMs, you hear about them going, you know, 100 years into the future to forecast what, what climate change is going to do. Um, and so these reanalysis data sets uh, are those, but just kind of frozen in time so that you get the kind of history in back through the satellite era. So they, they typically start in uh, around 1979. And you have gridded values of things like temperature, pressure, precipitation uh, across the whole globe and at different levels in the atmosphere. So these are massive, massive data sets. But um, yeah, so it's, it's numbers that we're using for these different um, variables that we know to influence sea ice. Okay. And when it says that you can forecast sea ice conditions, what kind of fit, what kind of conditions? Is it literally just growth and rate of growth or can you tell thickness or type of ice that's a good question yeah well the ones that i do um so two two of the major summer sea ice attributes that are of interest to a lot of research scientists are what the minimum sea ice cover is going to be so just where in the arctic is there still going to be sea ice when it reaches its minimum extent in the summer because as the year goes out you know the ice grows essentially throughout the winter and then shrinks in the summer so you have this minimum extent. The total CS cover is, is of big interest to scientists. So that was one of the forecast models, just um, making probabilistic forecasts at every location in the Arctic Ocean if there would be CS there or not. And then the other one that, that we did, and that's also of interest, especially for Arctic access, and it's becoming a growing interest for like the shipping community and tourism and governments, is the time, the kind of day of year that CS will melt away in a given location. And we call that CS retreat. And so... When we observe sea ice, what we're really looking at, one of the kind of basic data sets that we'll see is sea ice concentration. So we have these satellites looking down at the Arctic Ocean, and it's divvied up into individual grid cells. And then within that grid cell, we have the sea ice concentration, which is just what percentage of that grid cell is covered in sea ice versus uh, open water. And so we define sea ice retreat as when it drops below 15% concentration in a given grid cell. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. We do say something similar that reminds me of, you know, undergrad marine biology things, you know, where you have a quadrat on the beach and you are counting barnacles and you know, <laughs> what yeah, percent exactly. cover is in this corner, etc. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, exactly okay. that. Yep. So then what do these these models that you create, what do they end up looking like on a computer screen? Is it the kind of infographics that people might be used to seeing? So, you know, like growing and shrinking patches of white at the top of the globe or Yeah, basically what it produces is a, a map. Of, of the Arctic Ocean. And then at each of these locations, these kind of gridded locations will have, um, depending on the model, either you know, a probability, so a range from zero to one um, of whether or not there will be sea ice in that given grid cell, or for sea ice retreat, uh, just a color bar that tells you what day of year or is ice forecasted to melt out in that particular grid cell. But yeah, they both just, they just produce maps of, of the Arctic. And then, so 
obviously what's changing all the time is the parameters that you're feeding in to your models. And that's why you have to mm -hmm. keep remaking them. But is it a, a simple matter of, you know, just tweaking a few numbers because the earth's warming into a model that already exists or do you have to kind of rebuild them all from scratch every year? To um, yeah. So the structure of the model stays the same year to year. We update it with the, the newest variables that we're using to forecast. So, so some typical ones we'll use, we'll use air temperature, we'll use what the CS concentration is. And, you know, let's say we're making a forecast in May. We'll see, we'll see what the monthly average CS concentration was in April as a forecaster for what it's going to do in the summer. Things like how the uh, CS is drifting. So those are the variables that we update every year. We just kind of add them to, to the existing variables that we had. And then we let the model retrain and find its parameters, which both of the models I made were forms of linear regressions um, with you know, a little more to it than that. But essentially, you know, the model will then recalibrate its own parameters, which are these regression coefficients. It is being retrained every year, but the structure stays the same and all we really need to do is feed it in the new variables and then it, it does the rest. And then I imagine that you're not the only person looking at you know, sea ice in the Arctic, obviously not. That's quite an important topic. I mean, that's yeah. quite a hot topic. So is there, ever, is there ever, you know, debate over the effectiveness of one model over another? How do you overcome? How do you decide? How do you judge which one's better? Yeah, yeah no, that's, good. that's a good question. In fact, there is um, a group called the Sea Ice Sea Ice Outlook is this, um, it's not itself a group, it's put together by a group, I think folks that, that are primarily at University of Washington. But the Sea Ice Outlook collects forecasts of the sea ice from anyone who wants to submit. So you don't even have to be a scientist, you don't have to have a model, you can just look at the past years and say, I think this year the extent's going to be, you know, whatever it is. Um, and you can just submit it to here and to this this um, sea ice outlook. And then um, they collect three forecasts, June, July, and August. So three forecasts every summer of what's going to happen to the sea ice in September, which is when it typically reaches its minimum extent. And then they put together a postseason report where they kind of look at all the different models and all the different forecasts that were made and kind of talk about okay, which ones were better or worse and why, and what was happening in the Arctic that, su that summer, try to get an understanding of, of physically what was going on. Um, and what may have been driving either how good the models are or, or how, how off they were. So there is, a, you know, it's kind of an unofficial, not very competitive competition, but it's, you know, everyone gets to submit and, and it's, it's fun. They, they do like a, a skill score assessment at the end to kind of see who, uh, which model, you know, was most skillful at forecasting the minimum cover. So it's not really a debate on which ones are better. It's more like a fun competition to see who, who can get most accurate forecasts. Okay, and then is it data from places like this or from this place only that informs, you know, the research that goes into like, say, the IPCC climate reports that people probably are aware of? Or No, it's not only this, like the CS Alex. CS Alex does it, you know, on this seasonal timescales, um, but there's plenty of research being done in the long-term changes to the Arctic as well. So people looking at what's going to happen in 30 years, 50 years, 100 years. And so all of that, I mean, that's a, it's a huge field. There's tons of people doing that sort of work. Um, and so all of that gets pulled in for the more official things like the IPCC. And like, um, you know, I'm sure for like for government, you know, policy issues and lawmaking, you know, they, they pull from a much wider pool of research to make those types of decisions. This is more like a kind of fun. Um, okay. With this kind of career path that you're on right now, in your past, you did aerospace engineering, et cetera. Do you think that you need a kind of mathematical engineering background to get into this 
this stream of academia or could you learn it on the job if you had come through another route, biology or not, nothing, not all science, the arts, and then were to do a, a master's or a PhD and wanted to do statistical stuff? No, I don't think you would necessarily have to have a background in math or engineering. I mean, you definitely, there is quite a bit of math involved, but if you're willing to learn that in, in your master's program or PhD program, you want to get into it. You, Certainly could. I don't think there's any any reason why if you you know did you know liberal arts or, or anything else uh, originally that you couldn't make the transfer. I think it's it's very accessible. Um, and there's a lot of different ways that we can study the sea ice um, or, or the Arctic in general. Even if you're not studying sea ice in particular, that I think even if you didn't want to dive pretty heavily into the math, you could find a way. The way to do it is pretty um pretty open field. I feel like. Okay, so I think we'll move on to the next section of the podcast, which we like to call Fieldwork Fun Time. So this is where we talk about the fieldwork experience of our guest. And so you're not, even though you're doing statistical stuff and models and, you know, et cetera, which you can probably mostly, you know, do from an office, perhaps, you also need to go into the field. And you have been into the field. You were part of the first Mosaic school. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So people might remember Mosaic from a few episodes ago. We had uh, Amy Richmond on, who was an artist who was on board the first leg of the expedition. This was the this was the ship that the Polar Stern from the Alfred Wegener Institute, which sailed up to the Arctic and frozen into the ice deliberately, and then left there for a year so that it could <laughs> monitor the whole kind of life cycle of an ice flow from from birth to death. So you were you you were also on the first leg of the mosaic expedition i was yeah yeah so yep exactly um we were actually on the academic fedorov which was the support vessel uh russian ship that sailed out with the polar stern initially to help it get out there and and bring some resupplies um but also to help it identify the main flow that it was going to attach itself to and then to set up what was called the distributed network which was um, a series of observation locations in a 50 or so kilometer radius around the, the central flow. Um, that was kind of the one of the big tasks of this uh, support vessel. How did you get your spot on this uh, on this fabled expedition? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So it was all through Apex, um, they sent out an announcement or email or something. I guess it was the winter. It would have been the last winter, so winter of 2018, 2019, with an open college saying, "Yeah, if you're an early career polar scientist and you oh, want to." come out on this trip, apply. And so we submit kind of a bit of background about our research and who we are. And um, I think maybe an essay about how this fieldwork experience would, would influence our career or would help out our career. And then they selected 20 participants from around the world. Out of, I, I don't remember how many applied, maybe 250 or 300. And yeah, they picked 20 of us from different backgrounds and different locations. So people from all over the world and people that were studying sea ice or people that were studying atmosphere or the ocean or biogeochemistry or ecology. It's kind of got a good diverse group. And yeah, we, we just got a spot on the academic federal. And yeah, I guess the, the main goal of the school was to expose young research scientists or early career research scientists um, to one, to, to ship-based field work. So people that have never had that experience to kind of get things, you know, see what that's like. Um, but also the opportunity to meet other senior researchers because this, this, you know, Mosaic is touted as the largest Arctic science expedition in history. So it naturally attracted the best Arctic scientists in the world. 
Um, and so having them all in one place is just such a unique opportunity to, to learn, to, to teach, you know, the, the next generation of Arctic scientists. So that was another big goal of the, of the mosaic school. Of course. Yeah. Um, well, there you go. Congratulations on getting your spot. It sounds, yeah, <laughs> sounds awesome. Um, yeah. That sounds quite different to how polar field work usually is set up in that, you know, usually you have to, there's a great deal of planning. I'm not saying that you didn't plan it, but, you know, usually in polar field work, you have to apply for your grants, your funding, and then find the ship and the station right. ever to take you. So you're part of this mosaic school. So were there any obligations with that apart from just doing your own field work? Yeah, yeah, there were. Um, so, I mean, in terms of planning, yeah, we, we didn't really do planning for the expedition. I mean, the Mosaic expedition was 10 years in the making. So right. they <laughs> planned a, a lot for it, yeah. And then I, I think the decision was made for the, to include the school quite late in, in, the, you know, in the terms of the planning process where they had some space on the ship left over and i thought oh this would be a great opportunity to get some um early career scientists on board so that was that yeah we didn't really plan for it but in terms of um what we had to do so our, our big i guess responsibility after the expedition was we were all designated mosaic school ambassadors and so we all had to each had to develop an outreach project where we did something to get out into the community our various communities to share uh, our experiences on the expedition to um, inform people about the expedition as a whole and just about Arctic science in general. On our trip back from the ice while we were on the ship, it's about a week and a half, two weeks to get back to Norway where we departed from. Um, we spent that time developing our, our individual projects and people did, everyone kind of did their own different thing. Um, and a lot of people did multimedia where they created videos or um or a podcast about um, arctic science people did talks presentations about the expedition and the school as a whole which is uh, what i did quite a bit people did give talks at like museums or created uh, educational material for like k-12 through schools so it's quite big variety of the projects but that was our big post-expedition responsibility kind of being active voices for for what what the expedition was as a whole and what the school was okay and then how so how did you use this opportunity this uh this bit of field work what exactly were you doing in the field what was your goal yeah so for me personally i was i just wanted to get out and see the ice like i guess we've talked about all my research was just using satellite data so everything i know about the arctic i've seen through a computer screen or i had seen through a computer screen prior to, to going out there so i was just excited to see it in person and see you know, how it works on on a, a much finer scale than what I'm used to. You know, when we look at things about satellite products, we're seeing a footprint that's, you know, 25 kilometers by 25 kilometers. And that's as fine resolution as we get. But then when we get to go see it in person, it's, it's just right there. And it's much smaller. And it's, it's kind of crazy to see that it, it really, I mean, sea ice in particular is a funny feature that it's, it has similar properties on small scales and large scales. So the way you see it kind of flowing together and the cracks that form on this really small scale when you're on a ship are the same. It looks the same as you see when you're looking from a satellite. Um, so that was just kind of a cool feature to, to look at. Um, but so that was big, exciting part for me. Um, in terms of what we did out there, so our first two weeks on board when we were sailing to the ice, um, as I mentioned, there were these senior scientists on board. So they, uh, a bunch of them agreed to give guest lectures essentially to us, to us in the school. So for the first two weeks, um, we just got lectures on everyone's different field of expertise, whether it's sea ice or, or atmosphere or oceanography. And then part of that was these researchers would tell us about the work that they were doing on Mosaic, what instruments they brought along, what they were deploying, what their goals were. And then as we heard about all this, we could pair up with different 
scientists and formed teams of people that were doing work that we were interested in helping with. So I ended up working with some folks based out of NOAA here in Boulder who were studying atmosphere of um, over the sea ice and atmosphere, sea ice interactions kind of. So I helped them put together a meteorological station that was essentially just a sled with a whole bunch of equipment on it to measure air temperature and pressure and humidity and wind direction and uh, things like that. And so we yeah got got it out with the sea ice on the sled, pushed it out there and kind of had to tighten everything down. It was kind of funny. I helped them put it together in Boulder the summer prior to going out there. So I worked with them putting together the sleds in probably 95 degree heat in Boulder. Okay. And the next time I saw it, you know, it was, it was zero, it was freezing temperatures. Yeah. <laughs> um, different experience each time putting it together and different challenges for sure. But yeah. So that's, that was what I did. But some of the other folks did um, work with putting buoys into the sea ice. So drilling big holes into the sea ice and deploying buoys that would drop down several hundred meters into the ocean. Doing measurements of sea ice thickness and snow thickness um, in kind of different locations around the flows that we were working on. But those were kind of the big projects out on these uh, distributed network locations. And then obviously at the Polar Stern, they had a lot more equipment set up. But yeah, so we did that on, on three three different flows around the, the polar stream. Oh, how long were you in the Arctic for? Uh, about a month and a half. Okay. Almost wow. two months. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was really cool. And what was your experience, I suppose, of the Arctic? Was it how you imagined or completely different? Or what surprised you most about just, I suppose, the environment and what you could see from the ship? Yeah, it was it was kind of what I expected. I mean, it's just an unreal and beautiful landscape. I mean, it's it's all white. So I don't know, maybe it's easy to think like, oh, it's kind of just the same thing everywhere. But it's not. You know, the ice flows in different ways and bunches up and you get really cool features in the snowpack. And um, it just it's a really beautiful um, thing to look at. I think I was a bit surprised by how much the light daylight affected me so when we started the trip we weren't at 24 hours of light but it was we had long long days um and then when you're that far north you end up losing light quite quickly so i think at some point we were losing about two hours of light per day wow. uh, and then we got into to full darkness where um you know it wasn't technically polar night but the, the sun wasn't really it was just barely breaching the horizon or not quite breaching. Um, and so it was about two weeks or so of darkness. And it was pretty tough. I mean, you, you, just, you never, I never felt like I was fully awake. Just mm. always kind of in a state of like, I, you feel like you just woke up and you're, you're not quite functioning at full capacity. And you just uh. like that for two weeks. And that's, that was pretty tough. But then really exciting when we finally saw the sun again. Yeah, when you come back, it's like being reborn. Yeah, yeah, it was a pretty, pretty epic scene. We, we were, I think we had left the ice already, but it was a really cloudy day. The Arctic in general is is often quite cloudy, just because it's so cold. It's it's easier for the atmosphere to reach saturation in which clouds can form. So we started heading south, and we knew the sun was above the horizon. There was some light, but we couldn't actually see the sun for a while. And then first day, it came out behind a big rain cloud, and everyone on the ship is just out on the side, just kind of basking in, in this beautiful sunlight, like. Yeah, praising the sun god. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was um yeah, it was really, really nice, really uh exciting, exciting just to see the sun. It was like, oh wow, like I miss that so much. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Bizarre, yeah. And I also wanted to ask you, I suppose, what is life like on board the academic Fedorov, which is the Russian ship that you uh, spend all your time on? Because Yeah. I personally have been on research ships before in the course of my own field work um okay but they have only ever been 
British ships, you know. Mm-hmm. So there's quite a strong British culture, I suppose. You know, the food's quite British. The <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah. The people mostly, the 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 kind of banter that you have, I suppose, just yeah. And then Mosaic was this big multinational thing. I think there was like twenty nations involved, possibly. Oh, so I just wanted, yeah. Okay, yeah. So I just wondered if it was really if there was any kind of culture shock, I suppose, being on board a Russian ship. Yeah, a bit. I mean, so all of the crew was Russian and uh, like the Russian food, I, I think. I, I guess I don't really know what Russian food is, but yeah, so it definitely felt Russian. It's, it's old, I think it was built in the 80s, so it's old Soviet era ship. So it kind of had that like, I don't know, Soviet feel to it. But yeah, I mean, because it was so international in terms of the scientists on board, it was really, um, yeah, cultures, all, all sorts of cultures were there. It was kind of big melting pot. So it was really, I thought it was really enjoyable having people from all over because you really get to experience and learn from everyone, you know, different backgrounds that they have and and their different cultures that they bring to the ship. We didn't have internet access. Um, We were able to send really simple emails so we could kind of keep in touch with the outside world a bit. But other than that, no internet access. So, you know, a lot of our time was just spent entertaining each other. um, Which actually was really fantastic and really helped us bond a lot. You know, I brought... And I, I most people probably did tons of music and books to read and some movies to watch. And I ended up hardly doing any of that because when we had our free time, we just, yeah, entertained each other. People brought some instruments on board or we, um, you know, one of, one of the, one of the students was a CrossFit trainer. And so he would put on CrossFit lessons out on the deck of the ship every day. Okay. Um, people that, yeah, one guy uh, had done some MMA fighting and so was teaching us how to do some fight moves. Yeah, we always kind of learn from each other and, and keep ourselves entertained. There was a ping pong table uh, on the ship too, so that was kind of a big hit. Um, it was only available certain times of the day though, and on certain days, I think. So we ended up, a bunch of us on the Mosaic School created a game called Hit the Ball. Basically, we had this soft kind of stress ball and we had... We got ping pong paddles or books, and we essentially just played hacky sack with the ball, trying to see how long we keep it up before dropping. It sounds really boring, but when you're there <laughs> and you don't and you don't have other stimulation, you know, you don't have the internet or TV or anything. It it was, I mean, we played that game for hours and hours and hours. We got competitive with it, started keeping track of which groups had the highest scores. Pretty absurd, but it was a great way to pass the time. And, oh, that uh, sounds yeah. Super fun. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's really like that, isn't it? Just the kind of bonding, I suppose. Like, like you say, it's funny how when you're suddenly deprived of your phone for internet, exactly. you just kind of, how to describe it? You just kind of re, re-energize yourself in other ways, I suppose. Yeah, you just adapt. It's amazing how, how adaptable people are. And, and, you know, you get into this odd situation, but everyone, you really quickly find ways to, to be happy and to entertain yourselves and to connect with people. It's, it's pretty... That was one of the most amazing experiences or part aspects of being out there, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. So what was the actual absolute, if you had to pick one moment that was the absolute highlight of your field work times, what would it be? Ooh. Um, Tough question, especially if there's a yeah. lot. <laughs> I mean, I think in general, just getting out and to be able to walk on the sea ice and put together the equipment, I think was just so incredible and so gratifying i think if that hadn't happened if for whatever reason we weren't allowed to go out on the ice that would have changed the experience quite dramatically so i think that was probably be that the highlight but there are other things that were kind of bucket list items i mean the first time we saw sea ice we were we were having a kind of social we had these kind of social bar nights um on board and so a bunch of people hanging out we had a couple of beers and then 
you know, someone yells, oh, sea ice outside, and everyone just pulls outside. It's the first time I had ever seen sea ice, so it was, everyone's just going wild on the deck of the ship. But getting to see, like, the northern lights was incredible. We saw it quite a bit on our way back um, a few nights in a row. Um, saw polar bears. Yeah, it's like definite life bucket list items that we got to check off for sure. Yeah, that just sounds like you yeah. had a list and it was just like tick, tick, tick. For yeah, what yeah. you want <laughs> from your <laughs> Arctic experience. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Oh, fantastic. And then having come back, what? how did you feel af- afterwards having come back from this experience? Like, what was your immediate reaction? Yeah, um, I definitely felt a renewed excitement and interest in, in uh, being an Arctic research scientist. Uh, I mean, at that point, I was, I guess I was six or so, maybe eight months out from finishing my PhD, which as anyone who's gone through there or is going through that knows that kind of period is extremely stressful and extremely, yeah, <laughs> extremely difficult. It's me right now. It's tough. It's really, I mean, it's draining and it can be depressing and um, discouraging. And so this trip definitely helped kind of get me through that and helped kind of rejuvenate my interest and kind of remind me that what I was doing is what I wanted to do and that it would get me to, to a place where I wanted to be in my career. And um, I think, too, immediately coming off the ship and back home was, again, we talk about bonding with, with the people there. And um, I think that was still very fresh in my mind. You know, we definitely bonded a lot. Um, and we still keep in touch with all the other people in that were part of the school and, and other folks that were all on, on the ship as well. Um, you know, it's going to be lifelong friends and, and collaborators, I think. And so that was a big perk and a big kind of thing to reflect on when, when, when I came back to, uh, to real life, I guess. Yeah, sure. That's actually a really nice point of your PhD to be able to go into the field, I suppose. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. Is that that reason you said, if I could go right now, that would be great. I did all my field work right at the beginning and it feels like yeah. a, a distant and fun memory <laughs> exactly yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's a fantastic like rejuvenator to kind of yeah. help you get through the, past the finish line okay so that brings us to the final bit of the podcast we're still calling it the polar plug uh this is where i give you two minutes to just talk about any topic any polar thing that you would like to promote to the the general public so stage is yours. Take it away. Great. I'm starting a new postdoc pretty soon at the University of Maryland uh, in NASA Goddard. So um, I, I don't have research necessarily to promote right now, but hopefully I will <laughs> in the near future. Uh, but what I'd like to promote instead is, as I mentioned earlier, these outreach projects that we all did um, as part of the Mosaic School. Um, some people have put together some really, really amazing outreach projects, including, as I mentioned, some multimedia, some videos and learning materials um, or teaching materials, I suppose. And so uh, I just wanted to kind of give a shout out to all of those the other participants and all the things that they've done. Um, if people want to learn more about what they've done, they're all there's a website on um, it's on the Apex website. But I think if you just Google search Apex Mosaic School, you can probably find it pretty directly that way. Um, and there's a, a, a site where it's kind of aggregated all of the outreach projects that the various people have done. So um, I think it'd be really great for folks to go and take a look at what people have been doing and just kind of help either get you excited in Arctic science or if you're a teacher or you're um, in some way already involved and looking for ways to kind of share Arctic science with others. There's some really great resources there that um, I think people could, could really benefit from. 
Yeah. Okay. Fabulous. And you spell mosaic as in how you would usually spell mosaic. <laughs> it, yeah, is an yeah. acro- it is an acronym, but uh, that's how that's how you spell it. So it's quite easy to yep. search and find online. And actually, if you the first thing that comes up if you type in mosaic polar is their big massive MOOC, which is like a literally a massive online thing which has just got so much information and resources and interactive maps that you can scroll around on and stuff like that so you know mosaic aren't paying me to say that but it's it's (laughs) worth checking out (laughs) yeah 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 there's really good um i know university of colorado boulder has put together some mooc or coursera um courses on on arctic science and a lot of that was based on stuff that that they found or did on this mosaic expeditions they're they're really fantastic yeah yeah, and it's quite an exciting time because the Mosaic expedition is just over. The Polar Stern came back to yeah. Bremerhaven like last week, maybe Two even weeks, more yeah. recently than that. So yeah, so we're standing by to wait to hear all of the main findings, I suppose. They were trying to... Yeah, well, don't hold your breath because, uh, I mean, it's a massive amount of data that's been collected. I think there's going to be publications Gosh, on yes. this for the next 20 years, you know. I think the yeah. last... There's another expedition called Shiva that happened in the late 90s. And I think there are still some publications being made on that data. So, Mosaic, this is going to be in the in this is going to be in the forefront of Arctic science for decades. I think. Okay, there you go. So stay tuned, but don't hold your breath. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> great, great uh, to finish on. Yeah. <laughs> okay, Brill, thank you. So um, that brings us to the end of another episode of Polar Times. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. You can like, rate, and subscribe on all of your little podcast apps. Uh, we have a new email if you want to get in touch with Polar Times and to ask us a question or to ask a polar person a question, or if you want to recommend someone who you want to hear from, our email is thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. One more time, thesearepolartimes at gmail.com. You can also tweet Apex at uh, polar underscore research. So yeah, please, we'd love to hear from the members of the general public uh, what you want to hear from us and uh, what uh, we can ask on your behalf. So that just leaves me to thank my guest. Thank you, Sean Horvath, for joining us yeah, today. No, my time. pleasure. Thanks for having me. This, this is great. And thank you for, for doing this. This is such a good idea. Please note that whilst this is an Apex production, views and opinions expressed by the host and any guests are entirely their own. Do not represent the views or opinions of Apex or any other host institution mentioned.